The first thing I'd like to do this morning is express my appreciation for Father Wilcox, who has incorporated some lectionary modification for this final Sunday of Advent. So rather than an additional Sunday considering the life of St. John the Baptist, we can learn a bit from the life of Mary. I feel that far too many Christians, there has been a minimizing or even a dismissal of Mary. That's a, it's a terrible habit. All the rest of the saints of the Old and New Testament are recognized and incorporated uh, quite, quite frequently into our preaching and Bible studies. But for some reason, the grand majority of Christendom ignores Mary, possibly out of a fear of looking too Roman. The problem with that is she's the mother of our Lord and our Savior, and is certainly due a place of unique honor in our Christian lives. So therefore, it's a great privilege this morning to bring a message that I pray will both inform you about Mary and then in turn inform your lives as to how you might live a greater Christian life, having learned from her. Now let's turn our attention to that passage from our Gospel text, the Gospel according to St. Luke in the first chapter, beginning in the 26th verse. Now I want to point out that I really like the way that Luke writes. Luke wanted to make sure that everyone knew that he knew what he was talking about. He wrote in a lot of detail. He wanted to make a point of writing a gospel text and go on to write the text, which we know is the Acts of the Apostles, to be an accurate accounting of what has happened. And he discusses that in another portion of his writings. Now, he wanted to do this specifically because he was writing for Theophilus. He introduces his writing as to Theophilus. Now, whether that was a person by the name of Theophilus or whether it was a descriptor of who he assumed was going to read, a God-lover, Theophilo, we don't know. At least I don't know. Maybe somebody does, but I see that it is rather irrelevant because it is recorded in the text and therefore it is for us. And he says to make sure that you understand that he's writing to know, in a way, to know all of the details accurately, he starts by saying, it seemed good to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So he is writing as precisely as he can and as descriptively as he can so that we know exactly what is meant. And that's why he provides such great detail, so that we can be certain. Now then, he begins in verse 26. In the sixth month, the immediately preceding story is about the pregnancy of Elizabeth, who will soon give birth to John, who's going to come, become to known as John the Baptist. So in the sixth month is in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. 
just to make sure that no one is confused and thinks that he's discussing the month of June. The angel Gabriel. Angel Gabriel is one of the few named angels in our scripture text. He's the one that brought the news of Elizabeth's pregnancy to her husband, Zechariah, while he was serving as the priest in the Holy of Holies in the temple. And Gabriel, sent by God to Nazareth in Galilee to a virgin named Mary of the line of David. Luke ensures the inclusion of these points so that as the story unfolds, the reader will be aware that this story is covering all the important points as to the identity of the Messiah. He's checked all the boxes, so to speak. And just a few of the examples. From Galilee, he's answering Isaiah chapter 9 in that messianic prophecy. Born of a virgin. We have that messianic prophecy of Isaiah chapter 7. In the line of David is the messianic prophecy found in Isaiah chapter 16. Luke spends the first two verses of this narrative packing in all of the critical details. Details that will make the rest of the story make sense. Details that affirm the rightness of the story of the impending birth of the long-awaited Messiah. Then, with that context established, with all the background information rightly understood, we get transported to the scene, just in time for the action. And the angel came to her, that is Mary, saying, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. That particular translation is ESV and other translations. The one that was read just a moment ago, the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Or there is, the angel said to her, Hail, full of grace. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. That's Dewey Reams. Or the angel came unto her and said, Hail, full of grace. The Lord is with you. That's the revised standard version translation of the passage. Now in all of these translations, it really doesn't matter if it says favored one or full of grace. The Greek word for the term in question is a verb. Ke charitomini. Literally meaning having been graced by God. And it's a passive word. Having been. I would get the little red squiggle if you're using Microsoft Word saying correct your passage because you're using a passive voice. That means that God is the one who is filling Mary with grace. It's also a perfect verb, meaning that it is a completed action with ongoing or perpetual effect. Meaning that it has happened, it is happening And it will continue to happen. For an example, in Paul's epistle to the Galatians, in the second chapter, in the 20th verse, we read, I have been crucified with Christ. Whereas the King James Version, again, in this case, gives a better translation. The actual text reads, I am crucified with Christ. We're reading about a state that is continual and perpetual. The crucifixion happened in the past, 
but its effect never stops happening, thereby conquering all sins, past, present, and future. It is perfect. That is why the one crucifixion was reaches back into the Old Testament to justify the saints of the Old and reaches forward to justify all those that come after. Otherwise, it would only be effectual for those who were there at the time. But instead, because the crucifixion is a perfect verb action, as it is described, it is working within the timeline of God, which is a constant present. It goes all the way back and all the way to the future in the way human beings understand time. Now let us turn back to Mary and the Annunciation. The angel Gabriel greets her and says, Greetings, or hail. And then he goes on to say, based on the meaning of of the verb, you who have been filled with grace, you who are being filled with grace, you who, who will remain filled with grace. And just to make sure that there is no mistake about it, the angel says, the Lord is with you. The angel Gabriel is not speaking a simple word of salutation like we have in our liturgy. That's the Lord be with you. Just a actual prayer of petition, more than it is a greeting, to be honest, that we want the Lord to be with the other. No. In this case of the Annunciation, the angel Gabriel speaks in the perfect tense, the Lord is with Mary. It's an ongoing fact. The Lord has always been with Mary, is with Mary, and shall continue to be with Mary. And this is important. You need to keep this in mind as we work through the rest of the text and what it means to us today. God graced Mary in such a way that she is perpetually filled with grace. And God is with Mary that God is perpetually abiding with her. We need to know that because the very next thing we learn is that Mary was troubled when she heard. She understood what the angel Gabriel was saying. There is something extremely big going on here. Not some passing moment, but something that encompasses and will dominate the entirety of her life. Then the angel Gabriel tells her, Mary, you will bear the Son of God. This is why Gabriel had to tell Mary the way he told Mary, that she has been filled with a special and permanent grace and that God is always with her. Imagine if she had not been given these assurances prior to the bit about becoming pregnant. Imagine if she heard it the way I have in my many interactions with Christians of different churches and denominations, particularly when I was in the chaplain corps and met ministers from every different perspective of Christendom. Churches and denominations that make an intentional point of minimizing the person of Mary. Those who make the passage out to say this. Hello Mary, I'm here to tell you that God has picked you for a unique privilege in the caring and the giving birth to his son. But don't get too excited about it because as soon as it's over, you'll revert to being just another normal Jewish girl. It sure is a good thing that you're about to be married to a faithful guy. Otherwise, you'd be cast aside 
as an unwed mother and possibly even be stoned to death due to your assumed youthful dalliance. Have a great day. We'll catch you later. If that were the case, Mary's response would be much more troubled than it was after Gabriel told her she was about to be pregnant. We can be sure that Gabriel would have gotten a real airful in response rather than the simple question, how will this be since I know not man? Troubled, yes, but steadfast in the assurances that she has already received from Gabriel, she could answer, how will this be since I know not man? Before going any further, we need to look at this particular phrase. The one, I know not man. Again, we have a question of the tense of the verb know, which is clearly being used euphemistically to refer to, refer to sexual relations, and the modifier prior to the word, which is not, which we render into English, know not rather than the Greek word ordering, not know. Mary used the present tense of know, which all by itself would simply mean at the moment. It by itself actually would have allowed previous sexual relations. And she could be saying, well, that was well over nine months ago. That would have happened. And there's nothing going on now because she speaks in the present tense. So her answer could have simply been speaking of the moment, except except her particular word choice for not. There are multiple words that she could have used, but she used one particular not within the Greek text in which the, the Bible dictionaries for the Greek language and the Greek lexicon refer to as an absolute negative. What Mary is saying in her specific combination of verb and modifier is saying, I have not known, I do not know, I will not know. Less euphemistically saying, I have had, I've had no sex, I'm not having sex, and I'm not going to have sex. For a corollary in modern English usage, a person who is an absolute teetotal says, I do not drink. And we understand that person to say, I don't drink in the past. I'm not currently drinking. I have no intention of drinking. Although speaking in the present tense, we understand its absoluteness in the statement. It is from this specific way of expressing her virginity that the church fathers, those theologians in the first few hundred years of the church, were universally convinced of Mary's perpetual virginity. The church fathers have concluded under the influence of the ideal virginity that Mary took the vow never to know man, a progressive nuance of the present tense. And although such vows were not practiced in the early church, they were practiced in the Jewish reform movements existing at the time of Mary. That would be the Essene movement, which some good biblical scholarship indicates that Jesus was of the Essene movement. The doctrine of the perpetual virginity was additionally provided biblical precedent by describing the final days of the life of King David. We read in the first book of the first chapter of Kings, 
first book in first chapter, not the first book of the first chapter, I got those reversed, sorry, that King David was old and stricken in years, and they covered him with clothes, but he could not get warm. Wherefore his servants said unto him, Let there be sought for my Lord, the young king, of, excuse me, the Lord the king, a young virgin, and let her stand before the king, and let her cherish him, and let her lie in thy bosom, that my Lord may get heat. So they sought a fair damsel throughout all the coasts of Israel, and found Abishag the Shumanite, and brought her to the king. And the damsel was fair, and cherished the king, and ministered to him, but the king knew her not. And this we see the idea of a young woman being betrothed to an older man purely for the comfort to him, that it was practiced within the Jewish culture. We can see then the possibility that the betrothal of Mary to Joseph had no intention of sexual relations. Furthermore, the references to Jesus having brothers can be explained in two ways. One, it is fairly well uh, universally adopted that Jesus, excuse me, Joseph was a much older man and a widower already having children. The second answer is that the Greek language at the time used the words brother and sister to reflect all close relations and was applied to cousins as well as immediate family siblings. One terrific example of this fact is that James and Joseph are two people called by name as the brothers of Jesus, and that's in Matthew chapter 13. When we read the Gospel according to John in chapter 19, we see a collection of women standing with Mary, mother of Jesus, and they include Mary's sister and Mary Magdalene. If we return to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 27, we learn that Mary's sister is the mother of James and Joseph. So it does take a bit of cross-referencing, but it's clear directly from the biblical text that the men referred to by name as the brothers of Jesus are actually his cousins. All of this adds up to enough evidence for Christians to universally believe that Mary remained a virgin throughout her life, even past the time of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. The doctrine of Mary's perpetual virginity was so universally accepted as being derived directly from Scripture that Martin Luther, John Calvin, Huldrych Zwingli, John Wesley, and Anglican bishops Latimer and the Archbishop of Canterbury, Cranmer, all believed and taught the perpetual virginity of Mary. They believed Mary when she said, I know not man. I have not known, I do not know, and I will not know. If this is not what Mary meant, Mary would have a different reply. When Gabriel said, you will conceive and bear a son, Mary would have said, well, yes, a son, maybe a daughter, once I'm married in a few months. Instead, Mary replied, how shall this be? I have not known a man, I do not know a man, and I will not know a man. In reply, Gabriel gives her the explanation that she needs. 
The Holy Spirit will cause the pregnancy. This pregnancy will therefore be a miraculous act of God. Your virginity will be preserved. And in this way, you will bear a son who is the son of God. Gabriel further affirms the power of God to cause pregnancy by revealing to Mary that her relative Elizabeth is in the sixth month of her pregnancy, even though she had been barren her entire life and into an old age when she would have never been expected to become pregnant. Then the closing comment, for nothing is impossible with God. How could Mary have accepted or understood any of that had it not been for those upfront assurances? Mary, you have been filled with grace. You are filled with grace. And you will remain filled with grace. The Lord is with you. With these assurances from Gabriel, Mary, even though troubled by what he said, was still able to reply, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Now then, no sermon should be just to teach. No sermon should be just to convey some bit of information or another. A sermon's primary purpose is to encourage and exhort the listener to action. To become a Christian, if the listener is not yet a Christian, or to be a better Christian for the listener who's already a Christian. If that is the case, why dwell on the words spoken to Mary? At the start of the message, I mentioned it's my intention for each of us to learn something about Mary and thereby learn from her. What we know, what we now know, is even when troubled, even when looking at something that appears to be impossible or unbearable, Mary was able to say, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be unto me according to your will. Because of her being filled with grace and God's constant presence with her, Mary was able to provide her faithful response and then act accordingly. How does that apply to us? How does that apply to we Christians here today? I'll answer that quite simply. It is in our baptism. Christians, assuming that you have been baptized according to Jesus' instructions, according to the command of Jesus, the Son of Mary, the Son of God, are baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And of those of us who have heard that baptismal formula in English countless times in our lives, often fail to realize what is really being said. Hearing in the name of, we think of the authority granted. As a minister in the Christ church, there is an authority, even among all baptized, there is an authority to, in the name of God, baptize. That is a true statement. It is an accurate statement. It's also an inadequate statement. It is inadequate because the word used by Jesus in the Great Commission, the Greek word, ice, 
which means in, but more than that means into. If Jesus only wanted to convey the concept of speaking with God's authority or speaking in God's name, then Jesus would have used the simpler Greek word en rather than ice. By using ice, Jesus is telling us that in the sacrament of baptism, you are baptized into the Father, into the Son, and into the Holy Spirit. Your baptism makes you a member incorporated into the family of God. You are an adopted child and heir to the kingdom of God. You are a recipient of God's grace that makes you fully His. You have been baptized, therefore you have been graced by God. Jesus says then, in that baptismal commission, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Does this sound familiar? You are graced, and the Lord is with you. You are graced, and the Lord is with you. That is the promise, that is the reality of your baptism. Now, knowing this, we must ask, what is it that God is calling you to do? What is it that God expects for you to do for Him? What is it that you have been troubled over or not sure how you can respond when hearing a message from God and understanding how He desires for you to live your life? No matter what it is, and no matter how challenging it is, no matter how troubling it is, it is surely not more challenging. It is not more unbelievable. It is not more life-upending and disruptive than being a young, pregnant, unwed virgin in the ancient Near East. So learn from Mary. You who have been baptized, you who have been graced, you who the Lord is with. Learn from Mary to say, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Amen.